So I often, uh, okay, let me try that again without my hand in front of my face. I'm, I'm growing a beard right now and it's just like getting oh, in my dear. face. That's the worst. So I often wonder if I'm actually an intelligent person. Um, and it, it's not the imposter syndrome. Uh, and I'm actually pretty lucky. I, I don't suffer from imposter syndrome. Uh, I actually, we talked about that on the first episode, I think yeah. the second episode. Um, but I feel like a lot of people in the world, uh, view others as being innately intelligent or innately idiotic. Um, and certainly the way that we talk about other people, um, definitely follows that view. You know, we talk about the idiot on the road or the idiot at the store. Um, and when we don't understand somebody else's motivations or somebody else's actions, we categorize them in our head as, as being innately stupid and then talk about them that way. Um, and that's mostly an expression of frustration, which is, you know, okay. Like, you know, we have to have an outlet, but I, I feel like either that spills over. Uh, I don't know which way the cause and effect goes, but, but that shares, um, the, the worldview that we have when we think about ourselves, uh, particularly, uh, in the, our ability to accomplish things. Um, so when we see, um, an artist that we particularly like, we say, Oh, well, they're, they're really smart. I could never do that. I'm not that smart. Or, you know, when we see somebody fixing their car, we go, Oh man, I, I just don't get it. I'm not that smart. Um, and we value individuals who we view as being smart, like Dustin Sandlin of smarter every day. Like everybody thinks he's a very, very smart person. Um, and, uh, and and we value him for displaying those characteristics. But I I don't be, I don't terribly love the idea that there are different types of intelligence. I think that's um and that's kind of burying the point in a lot of semantics. Um but I, I do really believe um that in my own life, I've seen myself go from somebody who shouldn't be characterized as being very intelligent to being characterized as somebody or, or to being somebody who could be characterized as being intelligent. Um, and, and it's not that I have terribly changed my intelligence. What has changed is my ability, uh, to, to do things or my ability to understand situations in a different way. And, and I really think that the correct way to look at individuals um, is not whether they're intelligent or not intelligent on this innate level, this, you know, inherent ability to be intelligent. But I really think that it comes down to um, the amount of knowledge that you've collected um, which gives you the experience to um, to predict things in the future. Like, I, I really don't – I'm sure that there is some difference in intelligence. But, like, IQ tests, I really don't think that they test much that's uh, innate to your brain um, unless you're looking at somebody who is um, developmentally challenged versus somebody who is, you know, neurologically typical – um, and there you can definitely quantify the amount of difference between those two people. But for, you know, two neurotypical people, I really don't think that IQ tests are, are going to do much and that their perception as being intelligent or not intelligent really comes down to, um, how many different things they've experienced and how much attention they've paid to internalize those experiences and, and predict new experiences. Does does that sound reasonable? Am I missing something here? Yeah, absolutely. I, there are a couple of different things that 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 you mentioned in there that I think are are interesting to talk about. One is um, the the idea of different kinds of intelligence, um, and and that's not an unusual um, thought uh, these days. That uh, I think the the days of the IQ test as being the gauge of intelligence uh, are are 
we're past that. I I hope um, because uh, we have come to the point where different people with different kinds of intelligence are are working together, and that's being acknowledged. We we can talk about some some cases with that. Um, I, I think one of the things that you pointed out, uh, which is is really interesting to me, is that you you personally felt that you shifted from kind of a not intelligent place to an intelligent place. Um, that's a transformation that I've seen um, actually mostly in fiction actually, um, but is, is intriguing to me uh, because I've actually done the shift in the other direction. Uh, which <laughs> I, I know that, that, that sounds strange, but um, I, I have some, some specific examples of it. Um I don't know if you've ever read Flowers for Algernon, but uh, I, I do sometimes feel like my life is a, a long slide down the, the latter half of that book. That that idea that what we think of as innate intelligence can be turned on its head and we can actually have life experiences or, or learning that change what we view as our kind of innate ability, either ability to do something, but just even just ability to, to, to think and to, to be intelligent. And so I'm trying to think of, of some good examples um, before I, I present my uh, my depressing personal one. Um, <laughs> well, I, actually, let, let's talk about you because you're, you're the example in front of us. Uh, what were the things that originally led you to kind of assign that label to yourself, the, the not intelligent label? And um, and looking back on those now, do you think that those were, were accurate? Do you think that they were just you know kind of a narrow view um I, I think primarily what makes me think that is the types of people who um who i've been able to impress and i say impress in a very uh mild way like wh when i was growing up the people who were impressed with my knowledge were um people who who were being kind to me right um, so family members and friends of family members, uh, the people who, you know, you'd expect to say, Oh, well, you know, you're such a smart kid. Um, and the things that I would say to, I mean, when I was a kid, I was very interested in, in, you know, getting these reactions from people where people were impressed, um, with, you know, what I knew and, uh, a lot of things that I would say were just, you know, little things that I had read, like a single fact from a book. And I would start with a single fact and then I would extrapolate from that single fact and say a bunch of stuff that didn't really make any sense. And I think a lot of people were going, Oh, you know, look at this, this kid. He's, you know, talking a lot and, you know, let's encourage that. Cause that's, that's the correct response, right? Is, you know, let's, let's encourage, uh, children thinking and, and trying to make predictions. Um, and then when I got to college, I was suddenly surrounded by people who didn't give a shit about me. And I went through all of my college without anybody really being impressed with anything that I had done. Um, and now that I've been out of college for a while, um, and I've really begun to, um, understand that I can learn, um, <laughs> which is such a weird thing because, you know, I, I spent all of high school and college learning, um, but never really Im improving my ability to do things and doing things like the orbital mechanics and, um, even just recently joining a, um, a fabrication lab, uh, like the fact that I can build things like I can design and build things is really incredible to me. And it makes me so much hungrier for going and, and learning how to do new things. Um, but my estimation of how intelligent I appear has totally been, you know, through the reactions of others and who's reacting to me and how they're reacting to me. Um, I don't think that those things would change if all I was relying on was my innate intelligence, because I don't really think that I'm that much smarter. Um, and I, I know that I still suffer from the, um, the intense desire to feel, uh, 
it to, to feel other people being impressed by me. Right. So I, one of the things that I've done is I've learned to, uh, better repress my desire to just say things to hear myself talk or to say things to sound smart, whether or not they're actually true. Um, and, and not that I'm, you know, not that I've been an, uh, just like a liar my entire life. It's just, uh, I am getting better at knowing which predictions of mine are solid and which predictions aren't, um, and which I should talk about and which I shouldn't. Yeah. Does that, does that kind of give you Absolutely. a stage? It yeah. does. It, it, there was, uh, there were a couple of interesting, uh, pieces in there, um, in terms of, so the, the innate intelligence idea versus the idea of, um, intelligence being, your ability to adapt to things, which then comes down to what it sounds like are those tools that allow you to learn the tools that you've built up in your own head that allow you to you know, make even the simple leap of this is something that I can design. This is something that I can build. Um, getting from not knowing that to knowing that i've i've found that that is actually a very very big step um for for some people i run into that when usually when i'm trying to encourage a child um and the child's like yeah when i grow up i'm gonna make my own computer and it's like well that's great you can make your own computer right now <laughs> and it's like mind-blowing it's like what you're just making stuff up or you know usually it's in the form of like I will have a giant robot. It's like, yes, you will, because you can. Um, there are, you know, <laughs> let me connect you to the people who are making giant robots. Um, but that that kind of uh, mental tool, um, I think, is actually a much bigger part of how we actually define intelligence than um, potentially we, we realize, because... Somebody who has the mental tool and somebody who does not have the mental tool, when they both approach a, a problem, a new situation, uh, something that they need to learn, um, one has an advantage, the other does not. And if we look at them as, as though they are both only presenting what's innate to them, then we'll say it's like, oh, that's the smart one. That's the not smart one. Uh, so getting into the examples from from my own childhood... I started out very early on with a set of tools that were given to me. Um, so my brothers, I have three older brothers, um, and uh, two of them decided that it would be uh, an awesome experiment uh, to see how young I could be turned, uh, taught to read. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I'm trying to remember now, it was like reading at three, writing at four, um, and then kind of getting pushed forward in those things. Uh, so the point, uh, by the point I was actually in, in uh, grade school, in elementary school, I was reading, you know, novels off the shelf. Um, and this was just a thing that I was doing. I loved books. By that point, I had access to a bunch of books. Um, and uh, it was a thing that I liked a lot. When I actually got into school, what that meant is that the things that they had the most kind of testing apparatus for were reading things because that's kind of a new mm. skill that your six-year-olds are learning and you can kind of, you know, see lots of differences in there. And so I was given a bunch of tests. These are that kind of that IQ sort of idea. Um, uh, and they were tests of uh, I think some of them were actually reasoning tests, but a lot of them were really just reading tests and uh, the ability to understand what the test is asking for just by looking at the test. And so because of that, I did fantastically well on those tests. And those tests then immediately translated into this label, the kind of gifted label, the, the you know, whatever intelligence label you want to apply which meant that there was an assumption in school from the very beginning that I was automatically capable of all of these other things because reading was something I was very good at. Now, looking back at that, that's totally not true. I had one really strongly developed tool because I'd been developing it for years, 
and I didn't have any others. And so that kind of messed up the rest of my, uh, of my school, um, experience. Uh, and that carried through almost until college because, because, because you're being expected to be better than you were. Exactly. Exactly. And, and quite honestly, any situation I was dropped into after that, when I would change schools, when I would go into a, um, a new class, um, it was just whatever they happened to poke at. If you poked at one thing, I was remedial. I was the, the kid who needed a lot of help. If you poked at the other thing, I was super advanced. And it was just, just this constant dichotomy. And I internalized a lot of that. I internalized mm. that as there are things I'm brilliant at and things I suck at. And I don't really know which one of those things it's going to be because I'll be dropped into a new circumstance and they'll just tell me, it's like, oh, you suck at this. And therefore, you know, you, you need lots of additional help or you are brilliant at this. Um, there's a, I don't know why I keep coming back with uh, Simpsons references, <laughs> but there's a Simpsons episode where Marge goes back to work and um, she puts a bunch of things on her resume that aren't actually true. And she gets a, a job at the nuclear power plant and she walks in on day one and he says, well, you know, I would teach you how to use this machine, but according to your resume, you invented it. And he walks away. And of course, she has no idea how to use the machine, but there was a lot of that. It's like, well, based on your test score you know all of these things already so i'm not going to actually you know spend any time helping you develop the skills to learn them and yeah so that i was constantly being uh, tossed back and forth uh, between those things but the interesting thing is that i was labeled kind of the smart kid enough and by enough people that it almost always carried and the other part of it is that Conversational ability um, is often assigned. So that kind of verbal ability, you get the kind of precocious kid who knows a lot of adult language, not like, you know, that kind of adult <laughs> language, but the kind of, you know, puts things in a way that's kind of beyond their years. That person is then labeled as intelligent, despite, you know, what they actually are talking about. And so the other kids that I was around um, would just say, well, obviously, obviously you're the smart one. You know, obviously you get this particular thing because you're smart or you're able to do this thing because you're smart, which meant that, you know, both I could sail on that. It's like, oh, well, you know, you don't seem to understand this, but that's probably just because it's unimportant to you. So, you know, we're, we're going to give you a pass. Um, but then at the same time, it also set up for me imposter syndrome where I would walk into the room and everybody in the room would look at me as though I should be the smart and contributing member, even though I'm brand new to the, the, the circumstance and know nothing about it. And so I'm Marge sitting in front of the machine and being asked to operate it. But I don't know how this works. And so I can either bluff my way through or, as I later learned and, and wish I had kind of taken too early on, I can state in loud terms. It's like, actually, no, I don't know a damn thing about this. I'm, yeah, I just walked in the door. So let's treat me like I'm, I'm you know, Captain Obvious here and, and tell me everything that I need to know. Huh. That's really interesting. That's actually uh, uh, very similar to my childhood um, because I also started reading very early um, or I started reading very strongly very early. Um, and I remember doing a few clever things like on the computer and watching my parents go, oh, holy cow, you're really good at this. And I was like, well, no, I, I just clicked some random buttons and this thing that looks very intentional popped out. Um, but I also uh, internalized that praise and expected myself to be able to do really amazing things. And then as soon as I try to do something, uh, I my overconfidence uh was made apparent <laughs> and, uh, and I'd fail at that thing. And then I, I would feel really horrible and I wouldn't try that thing again. Yeah. And, and that actually was then 
what led me to feel early on that there was something wrong between my understanding mm -hmm. of a thing and my ability to do it. So it wasn't that I was bad at knowing, it was that I was bad at actually acting on it. Um, and that's actually something that I really strongly internalized was that I wasn't capable of things. There was something, you know, fundamentally wrong with me. And the word lazy uh, comes mm. up in a lot of cases there because I would try to do a thing and do it poorly. And the assumption was always just, well, you're not, you're not applying yourself. You're not doing mm. all the things you're supposed to be doing. But then I wouldn't really know what that was supposed to be mm -hmm. because the assumption was that I didn't need to be told any of the steps. And so I'd go home, sit down in front of a blank sheet of paper and kind of go, eh, I'll just sit here in front of this blank sheet of paper for an hour and have nothing to show for it at the end of it. And then go back to school and kind of go, eh, I don't have anything. And they're like, well, you didn't try. I'm like, I don't, I don't even know what trying looks like. Mm -hmm. Whereas... When I would actually start doing something and then come up with a result that looked to me like it was a good result, um, I actually found this with, uh, with drawing earlier on where I would, I would draw things and my kind of freehand sketching was and is awful. Um, it's actually, it's, it's, it, nothing ever looks like anything. Never play Pictionary with me. <laughs> um, but then I found the amazing world of technical drafting, mm. which is the most amazing because you have all these tools and you lay the tools down in the paper and then you follow the tool. And when you wanted, like with a, um, a French curve, I want the curve to go this way. I like shift the tool around and look and see. It's like, yes, that's where I want the curve to go. And then I trace it along. And so I was making these like, you know, elaborate technical drawings. Um, and that's really when I started getting into Star Trek. And, and you know, I, you can get this, like the Star Trek technical manuals and they have lots of these drawings in there. And so I would do, you know, elaborate like space station designs and like moon colony designs. And I'd spend like three hours sitting in front of something and just do the shading on a, a mm. dome or whatever. And I would look at the thing and I would, I'd be like, yes, this looks like the things that I'm seeing in these, um, in these uh, manuals. But then at the same time, I would say, well, there must be something that I'm not seeing because obviously I don't know how to do that. And so I would never like take that thing and go to somebody else and say, look, look at the amazing, you know, sketch or, or diagram that I made. I would just automatically discount it in my head because... I already knew that I didn't know how to draw and was terrible at mm. it. And so, you know, this is just an example of my terrible drawing that I don't even recognize. Wow. <laughs> that sounds really painful. Yeah. And, and it, the interesting thing about that is I think I probably would still feel that way about those drawings today if I didn't then start making T-shirts that that was the the kind of the odd inflection point for me where um at some point i don't know probably about 20 years ago i would you know draw a t-shirt that i thought would be an interesting design um to have mm. and that i would show to somebody because it, there was something like you didn't really expect good art out of a t-shirt i guess it was more the idea and i would show it and somebody would say oh wow yeah i totally would want that shirt. And I'm like, oh, okay. I guess my design was good enough that it fooled somebody into feeling that it was a good design. And then I would move forward and, you know, do more designs like that. And I started doing art for the um the the software that I was producing. So at that time, this is around the turn of the century, which I still love saying, um, I uh was working on a um a, a GUI. Uh, basically. And uh, this UI, um, it was entirely web-based, but I was using kind of a Windows sort of looking um, uh, uh, kind of aesthetic for it to make it familiar. And so I started, you know, drawing out the icons and I was doing icons for all the various pieces and uh, it was a workflow tool. So you'd have kind of, you know, step by step by step. And each of the steps had to have these icons that were, um, you know, fairly recognizable. And so I would, you know, apply all these same 
tools that I had to, to designing those icons and then present it, thinking that I was presenting kind of a prototype and somebody was going to swoop in and come up with better icons and like, you know, shove mine aside and, and we'd get into the real icons. But what would happen is people would come in and say, yes, that's perfect. That's exactly what we want to go forward with. And they'd go forward with it. Now, here's where the, the imposter syndrome like really takes hold because then I'm like, wow, they can't tell these are bad icons either. They can't tell how like terrible this drawing is. And they're, gonna, they're about to like ship a product on an actual DVD that, you know, implements these, these icons. What have I gotten myself into? I'm, you know, working with people who aren't smart about drawing. And so I'd have these long arguments with the people I was working with to say, it's like, well, we need to bring somebody in who actually knows how to draw these icons. Otherwise, we're going to look like fools. And when they finally, you know, agreed to that and brought somebody in who was, you know, a graphic artist who was working with these things, they actually redesigned the entire look and feel of the thing. And quite honestly, it didn't look as good because it was somebody just kind of coming, walking in the door. Somebody who didn't really understand the concepts that were trying to be portrayed. And they just kind of decided that everything should be this kind of light purple that was super in vogue around that time. And it, me looking back at it, I'm like, wow, that actually was a real step down. But at the time, I was like, thank goodness somebody can you know come in and actually apply some some design principles to this thing man that's super externalized imposter syndrome (laughs) and i carry it to this day yeah which i mean is obviously you know really uh really not a fantastic thing um especially because you drew um or you you did a a t-shirt um concept for the orbital mechanics that I'm still trying to get made because I think it's awesome. Well, and, and that's a really interesting uh, example because if you remember how I presented that to you, I was not going to present you with a t-shirt design. I was going to present you with an idea and a sketch for a t-shirt design that you probably wanted somebody to actually implement. And that that's to this day, the way that I'll, I'll present anything <laughs> drawing related. Well, Hey, I mean, if you, if you want to take a crack at some uh, first draft or maybe even final art, like uh, it will definitely be uh, considered on a, uh, with, with a positive bias, I guess. Um. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll see if I can convince myself to do that. So let, let's talk a little bit about the, the flip side of that, because there's also there's, there's the, um, the inverse of imposter syndrome, which is that feeling that, hey, yeah, I know exactly what this should look like. Here it is. And not, re- not having the, and we'll, we'll use intelligence in the broad sense, but not having the intelligence to recognize your own ability which is, and I can't remember the name of the effect now. Dunning-Kruger. Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, and I've certainly come across that plenty of times in my life before where somebody walks into a circumstance and they're used to being told that they are awesome at a thing and they don't really realize that what they're doing is, is, you know, wrecking the entire ground on which they stand. Um, that's an interesting effect to me because it, how do I even put this? The existence of that effect then makes me wonder a little bit more about my imposter syndrome and which parts of it are not actually imposter syndrome <laughs> and are actually true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dun- Dunning-Kruger is so upsetting to me because uh, by definition, you cannot tell when you're being affected by it. Um, and uh, uh, was it a, was it a 99% invisible 
Um, I don't remember. I, I remember listening to a podcast recently, like within the last two or three months, um, just talking about Dunning Kruger. And, it, you know, it's this, this thing that I've known about for a while. And it was really good to hear it, uh, addressed by professionals again. Um, because it, it really is a scientifically measurable thing, right? It's not that idiot on the road who thinks that he's really good at driving. Um, although that, that may be encompassed by Dunning Kruger. Like Dunning Kruger is specifically talking about people taking a test and then judging how well they did on the test. And the people who did really poorly generally think that they did really well. And the people who think that they did really well generally think that they did poorly. Um, and I've kind of lumped in my head, I've lumped that in with the idea of innate intelligence, even though I, I guess it really uh, is driven by, um, you know, acquired knowledge or acquired experience and, and that mode of thinking. Um, but I, I guess it, it might be part of the, the rant portion of this topic that, um, that Dunning Kruger is so often looked upon as, as a, a bad thing that's only experienced by idiots. Um, cause it's, it's not really. Yeah. No, it, 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 and that, that's a really good point. Um, that gets back to what you were talking about originally, that idea that other people don't know anything because of this very specific circumstance that I've come across in which somebody is presented as not knowing a specific thing, that immediate and blanketing generalization of all of their abilities because they don't have this one particular tool. So a little bit of a, um, a, uh, um, a digression. I do a lot of hiring. It's, it's a big part of my job. And in interviews, one of the most important things that we do is we try to pull out a couple of, of, of specific examples and then generalize over this person's entire ability to do that thing. So it's computing, it's um, programming. And so I give somebody a small programming example and I see how they react to it. I see how they, they work through it. And then I, I need to, it's not even just that I, I, I want to, or it's, it's the circumstance. I need to be able to generalize out to all of their ability to do that class of thing when they're on the job. Uh, this makes, you know, that kind of interviewing and that hiring mm. awful. It's, it's so scattershot and it's completely useless because my choice of what I asked them to do greatly affects what it looks like they're capable of doing. So I can bring somebody in who is brilliant at exactly the job that I need them to do. But because I asked them to get up and draw something on a whiteboard, or the worst aspect of this, which is I asked mm. them to program on a whiteboard, you know, write text, which is what you're normally sitting down in front of a computer and, and typing and write text of this program that will implement this particular thing. And the sheer fact that they're standing <laughs> in front of a whiteboard while I'm sitting down and kind of judging them is enough to shut mm -hmm. off a lot of people's brains. They basically kind of look at that thing and, and it's like they don't even know what their tools are. They don't have the kind of, well, I'm, I'm used to sitting in front of an IDE and what I do is I go into like new this type of program and it fills out a skeleton for me. And that's what I'm starting from. Or I might be starting from, you know, a, a piece of code that's already written and I'm making this particular change to that code. So I don't really think about the kind of the basic structure of the code. I think about the specific thing that I'm, I'm looking to implement and understanding how it relates to the, the general structure. So what ends up happening sometimes is that person will stand up in front of the whiteboard and kind of go, I, yeah, let me think about this for a second. And they don't look particularly competent as a result. You've just asked them to, you know, um, you know, give a, an algorithm for the, the distance between two points and in a, in a plane. And it's like, okay, the, the basic thing that you're asking for 
should be fairly commonly known. The specific thing that you're asking for, which is an algorithm to implement it, should be you know something that any uh, coder is capable of. But everything that it's wrapped up in is so different from their ordinary experience that it makes them look bad at a very simple thing. So you bring somebody in, they do this thing, and they're like, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what it looks like. And then, you know, you generalize from that, and you're like, oh, wow, there's absolutely no way I would want this person on my team because they can't do a simple thing. So that comes up for me, and then I'll take one more digression, and we'll actually get back to the effect. So um, in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know if you have seen it, but um, there's actually uh, the greatest encapsulation of this uh, idea where Butch and Sundance, you know, famous outlaws, Sundance Kid, fastest gun in the West, they are known for being very competent at what they do to the point where they've been run out of the country for it. So they're in Bolivia and um, they want to stay out of trouble long enough to then go back to the United States and get back into trouble. So they need to go to le- go legit, which means they need to get jobs. Well, what kind of job can they do? Well, they can protect the same kind of wagon trains that they've been, you know, stealing from. So they go to this job interview and the guy giving them the interview is like, okay, well, can you shoot? And they kind of chuckle. It's like, can we shoot? Yes, we can shoot. It's like, okay, show me. So he takes his own gun. He puts it in Sundance's hand. He actually extends Sundance's hand to point at the thing that he wants him to shoot, steps back and says, okay, shoot the thing. Sundance can't hit it. He tries firing at it a few times. It doesn't, it doesn't hit. And the guy just kind of shakes his head. And you can see they've, they've lost this job. And as the guy's, you know, kind of, you know, takes his gun back, Sundance says, well, can I move? And the guy's like, well, yeah, you can move. And Sundance, like, pulls out his own gun, blasts the thing, you know, two ways from Sunday, gets his, his gun back, his holster. The whole thing is taking a, you know, quarter of a second. And the guy is very impressed. And the big difference is that Sundance could do it his own way to actually achieve the thing that, that you know, the was the actual test. Instead of being put into this extremely... Um, unusual and artificial situation in order to to do that. So in terms of hiring and having to like avoid, you know, the, the Dunning-Kruger effect in terms of, or not even, it's not even that effect because it's, it's the inverse of that. It's that I am uh, generalizing your ability to do things from a specific example that I've put you in. Um, I have to do that same thing where it's like, I need to like basically poke around for a while just to figure out where the person is comfortable and then give them an example in that area and actually say, it's like, okay, now that we know where you can do this, here's the thing that I'd like you to accomplish. That is very similar to what you'd be doing on the job. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. I never connected because i'm very critical of of interviewing styles um mostly since i have been called upon to interview at work uh and i I don't think i ever really connected it to uh to a potential for dunning kruger to show its ugly head um that's that's interesting yeah and and quite honestly that the dunning kruger itself also shows up in those interviews where you have somebody who walks in the door and they do believe that they're excellent at whatever it is that, that um, you're hiring for. And then you say, okay, well, can you show some of this excellence? Uh, show it in terms of your knowledge of this thing that is on your resume that you've done quite a lot. And they start to explain it. And it becomes very plain very quickly that they have an extremely surface level knowledge of this thing that they're supposed to have, have done a lot of. And you kind of prod and poke around it and that's it. It holds true. They really do have a very shallow knowledge of this thing. It's just that they themselves feel that they have a, a, a strong idea of it. 
And one of the things that I've found is that that does seem to be a general sense of uh, what the person knows about those subjects. Um, each of the subjects that they're, they're being tested on, that they're kind of being prodded into, they don't really know as much as they do about it. They may have actually worked with it in the past, but maybe they were the, you know, lead engineer on a team of engineers and everybody else really actually did the working with it. And so in that case, I, I do wonder if the effect is, I guess, generalized rather than specific. So that if a person has this point of view about things they know, they might be more common or more likely to have this this opinion about new things that they don't know yet, but they're like, oh yeah, well I'm I'm on top of that one too because I've heard about it. It kind of passes the bar for a thing that I think that I know. Yeah, and, and there's also that sweet spot, right, where uh, a, a lot of confidence and very little ability. Um, results in somebody who's really impressive just inside the threshold and then really disappointing at the end of the interview. Uh, a lot of con or, uh, very little confidence and a lot of ability results in somebody who doesn't show themselves to be good at their job or, or good at the potential job. But then there's that, that sweet spot where you hit both, where they're able to say, Hey, here's what I know. Here's what I don't know. Um, and, and it, so what's the name of that effect? The, uh, uh, the effect where you're promoted to the, uh, highest or the lowest level of your incompetency. Right. The Peter principle. The Peter principle. I think that yes. Is. So, so there's the Peter principle, which is you get promoted until you are incompetent and then you stay at that level of authority. And I feel like for interviews, there, there might be another principle that's sort of like that, which is, where people who are less competent but better at showing their incompetency are more quickly hired than people who are highly competent um, but not so good at showing their competency. Um, and so, yeah, I do think that I, I do think that that is valid yeah. uh, and that it's valued as well. That that um, if you can go in and have and portray an accurate map of your own abilities then that map lends credence to the rest of the mm -hmm. things that you say about yourself. Yeah. The low points give a foundation for the high points. Yeah. Um, but what, what interests me is that that, that sweet spot I think is probably trending more towards incompetent people. Uh, right. If there's a, um, a direct real core, this isn't true, but if there was a direct correlation between intelligent or uh, between uh, confidence and ability, um, where you know it was always it, it was a um, a zero sum game where you either had one or the other, um, I feel like that sweet spot would be lower. Or it would be just under fifty percent competent, right? It wouldn't be fifty fifty. Be like fifty five forty five. And so I think you can extrapolate from that very unrealistic theory to the real world where um, uh, I'm guessing that people who interview really well are generally a little bit less competent than the people who don't interview well, but are very competent. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's so certainly I, I, possible. I wanted to give one quick uh, example because it, it's the f my my favorite interview of all time. Uh, <laughs> was with um, a person who was so incredibly steeped in Dunning-Kruger, um, but so confident that it almost didn't matter. And they almost got the job. Um, they uh, they sent in a, a resume for an entry-level job. I mean, it's, uh, it's something that we hire um, people with office experience, but no experience in the actual details of this job. Um, and, uh, it's, I mean, it's fantastic for, um, uh, for like partial college dropouts because they've got enough of the regimented ability, but they, um, don't need much more than that because we train them how to do their job, uh, 
And, uh, and I, I say that knowing that everybody that's done this particular job for me has, uh, either completed college, completed some grad school or was in grad school <laughs> because, you know, our <laughs> workforce is horrible. Um, and we don't, we don't value people, but, um, you know, this, this kind of job could be done by a college dropout with understanding of Microsoft office. And so we, we would expect a resume that's got, uh, a one page cover letter and a one page resume that looks really nice and sleek. And when I open it up in word, instead of just printing it out, when I open it up in word and turn on hidden characters, I want to see carriage returns and, um, a single tab with the, you know, with the, the tab, um, uh, what's it called? Oh, the tab stops. Tab yeah. stop. There you go. I was thinking tab click and that just didn't. <laughs> but you know, like, uh, if you've got a, um, a wide indentation, I want to see a single tab with a tab stop instead of 50 million, uh, spaces to get things to line up. Like, you know, it, uh, if you have that in your resume, like you're already starting off with a, with a bunch of, uh, a bunch of points. And this person sent in a resume that was maybe five pages. Um, it had, um, margins that were incredibly wide. Um, like they had very clearly just taken a template off of Microsoft Word, um, and not a resume template, a template for something else, like a flyer or something. I don't know. Um, and it had a, a headshot and, uh, it wasn't even a good headshot. It was like their friend was cropped out of it. Um, and these super wide margins. And, um, when I opened it up in Word, some of the paragraphs were not separated by a new line. They were separated by spaces until the new line popped onto the next line. Um, <laughs> just horrible and and five pages of a resume that said i and me over and over and over like i felt that i did great because of this or you know like not i increased numbers by this much it was like i feel like my contributions you know it's just, i don't know it, it it was a horrible resume and then the person came in and was so incredibly confident uh that they were in the top two people for the job and the only reason they didn't get it was because I was like, you know what? I'm going to have to hold their hand every time they touch the computer. And I don't want to do that. Um, and like, it was absolute Dunning-Kruger because, you know, afterwards kind of thinking about it, like they really, they were not the right person for the job. Uh, they could have caused me a lot of problems, uh, outside of, uh, the computer. And... Uh, you know, on one hand, it's just a, a funny thing that I think about every now and again is how horrible this resume was. Um, but, but also like it was absolute Dunning Kruger. They could not see how incompetent they were and thought that they were hot shit and deserved all. I, no, no, let, let me not talk about what they deserved because humans deserve good things. Like that's not fair. Yeah. But like they, they thought that this job was perfect and they'd be perfect for this job. And. Like seeing the, the, the things that have come up for this position, uh, the, the problems that have come up that have had to been solved, like they wouldn't have done any of those solutions very well. They, they would have crashed and burned. Um, but they were, uh, it, and their, their confidence was infectious. Like I, I really truly believed that they were super competent, even though they weren't. Um, which kind of scares me. Like it kind of scares me that I'm, I'm, like not only does Dunning Kruger affect others, sometimes it affects me. Sometimes I can't tell that somebody didn't do a good job, you know? Um, yes. Which I guess is kind of yeah. what you were expecting with your, your gooey story, you know, where you're expecting other people to realize how horrible your work is and they, they don't get it. So they must also be horrible. I guess it's from their perspective. They're going, Oh no, Chris knows what he's doing. This looks like good. What, you know, I don't, I'm assuming that your work was actually good. Um, but if it wasn't, then. I could very easily see people assuming that it was because it was coming from you. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the kind of the scary areas to, uh, to be in. Um, now you mentioned something that reminded me of people that I've worked with who come in the door, they have all the confidence, they, they can get the job 
uh, but can they do the job? Um, sorry, that's a Joe versus the volcano oh. quote that that pops into my head every time I do hiring. That, but that's but, a fantastic phrase, though. <laughs> it is. Um, and so they they get the job. They walk in the door. They're super confident about what they're doing. But quite honestly, in, in many of these cases, you realize that what they're confident about is coming from something else that they were able to do well. And then this new thing that they think they're doing, they're actually not quite very good at it. And so that kind of idea that, well, I am competent in one area and I am exposed to a new area that I don't know much about. And therefore, I'm going to be competent in this new area as well. In fact, I'm already competent in this new area and I'm just going to do the thing. And uh, oftentimes those people would just make a total hash of this new area. I mean, to the point where I worked for a company and we brought somebody in and the reason the person was hired um, was because they were a, a good system administrator um, and walked in the door and declared upon walking in the door that they were in business development, which is a very different thing. Mm then proceeded to do neither of those two. Um, basically, you know, did the business, just the business development by doing it so poorly as to not actually get anything done. As you can imagine in business development, if you do it badly, nothing happens. Um, and then also proceeded to not do any of the system administration tasks that were being assigned and therefore did poorly at that as well, but just simply by virtue of ignoring it and then didn't last very long. Um, but I, I do wonder about that aspect of, of Dunning-Kruger because um, you've seen this, I see this, the person who walks into a room and because they're just kind of generally confident about their abilities – they are the immediate expert on the thing that they don't know anything about, and they can ruin a conversation. They can ruin, you know, a, a decision-making process. Um, this happens, I'm, I'm thinking of YouTube commenters <laughs> who, you know, will, you know, there's this, you know, elaborate video on somebody who is, you know, uh, testing their new uh, rocket motor for the first time. And the, uh, the the engine performs well, um, and you get you know invariably the YouTube commenter that says, "Oh, it's like, oh, why are you you know make it a rocket engine? You know that's been done before, and it's such an easy thing." Or, you know, why are you still doing chemical rockets when you could be using electrical propulsion? Or just there's some like super naive outsider sort of thought that that goes into um, the comment. That at that point, it's like, I, you just kind of came into the conversation and just, you know, dropped this smelly idea <laughs> in, in the middle of it. And, uh, th there isn't any answer to that. I'm, I'm not going to engage yeah. with you because you can't actually add anything good to the conversation. But at the same time, it, even just ignoring you, your comment just kind of sits there. And, and it's, it's funny because I feel like those, um, so, so that kind of thing happens on Reddit a lot. And I spend a lot of time, uh, on the space and space flight, uh, and associated subreddits, um, answering those, uh, those kind of comments, um, because I, it's like the one thing that I'm willing to risk. Uh, like I'm, I'm very, um, risk averse. Um, I don't like gambling at all. And, and I feel like those are the one thing that I'm willing to risk, uh, my time on because if I put in a little bit of time, there's a 50 50 chance that they will either be absolute idiots and reply with, okay, well, that doesn't help me or. They'll get really excited and go learn new things. Um, and sometimes come back with new knowledge for me. Um, so <laughs> the other day somebody posted on the NASA subreddit, um, a question that was, uh, actually I'll go, I'll go find it. I'll, I'll read it. Has NASA ever thought of making a golf cart size ship to fly around the ISS? And, and so like this question, like clearly, uh, says two things like uh, uh, 
I'm going to, I just said two things without actually counting how many things I'm going to list here. Um, so, so this post obvious or th- this question obviously says, uh, I don't understand what a spacesuit is because a spacesuit is a tiny spaceship that allows you to fly around the ISS. Um, and, <laughs> and so my answer was basically, well, you know, what, why exactly do you think that that's a good idea? Um, because if it's just to observe station, you know, Soyuz already does that. Um, if you're thinking that it's good for, uh, repairs and hardware installation, um, you know, MSS is better at that than, than a free flying vehicle could ever be because, you know, uh, robotic arms are, are fairly set it and forget it. You know, you, you put a, an astronaut on the end of the arm and you fly it out to wherever they need to be to their, to their work site and you set the arm in brake mode and leave it. And it, it just stays there. You don't have to spend any propellant. You don't have to worry about propellant impinging on, on your delicate science experiments. You just set it and it's, it's good. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and this, <laughs> this user's reply was, uh, for what purpose to see if it's possible? The MSS is gay as hell. Okay. <laughs> and that's what indicates to you. It's like, all right. So yeah, this conversation is over. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they, they also replied to uh wiki text bot, which, uh, expanded the text of a Wikipedia page I'd linked. And, uh, you know, so I just noped the f- out of that conversation. Um, I tagged them, uh, in, uh, RES, which is a, a plugin for making Reddit better. I, I gave the user a tag, uh, MSS quote unquote gay as hell. So that if I ever run into them again, I know not to talk to them and I know why I don't want to talk to them. Um, but, uh, if we're, if we're talking about people who, uh, who suffer from this ex this outsider uh this outsider mindset but thinking that they know enough to participate in the conversation um there there really are two outcomes to that uh there's MSS is gay as hell which is I am an outsider I'm not an insider and I don't care to become an insider I don't care to understand uh why the world works the way it does. And then there's the, the kind of person who, um, actually, to be fair, it's more than 50% uh, of the people who ask these, um, very outsider questions on, on this space subreddits. Um, they ask these questions and I go, okay, well, y- you're in the wrong context. Like, let me give you better context and you'll see why your question doesn't make sense, but you'll have this new context to ask more meaningful questions in. And I've had, extended conversations with people like that. And it's so satisfying to watch them absorb these things and then pull themselves, uh, finger by finger into an insider context, um, which is the only solution for Dunning Kruger, I think is to be told that you're suffering from it and to not reply with anger, but to reply with a desire to learn and a desire to understand what you don't know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is, uh, it's, uh, a good skill to develop and you've probably a hard one skill for you. Um, for everybody, and, uh, for everybody. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I, well, that's what I mean is it's a good skill for anyone to develop. Yeah. Um, in your case, it was probably hard one. I know that in my case, it's also hard <laughs> one because figuring out how to present those new uh, those new environments for somebody to to continue learning. Um, I did a lot of space outreach uh, about you know ten years ago, um, just standing out in front of you know the the space center at Balboa Park, which is a very public place, in front of posters about space things, and everybody has an opinion mm. on space, mm. um, whatever it happens to be uh, um, uh, founded upon. And so, having that conversation over and over and over again, uh, it uh, it did help me uh, get to the point where it's like, okay, here's here's a new way to present this that uh, it doesn't feel like me uh, bashing my forehead against uh, a brick wall. Well, and and I'd like to to point out that the idea that um, that a learning mindset uh, 
is hard to learn, but learnable. I think that's the major reason why I want to reject the idea of innate intelligence. Um, because it, if that's the defining, uh, the defining attribute or the defining variable of how we move through life, um, making yourself more intelligent uh, may be possible, but I don't know how you would do it. But making yourself more knowledgeable um, and um, allowing, or teaching yourself to learn what kind of knowledge should be um, should be sought after and should be soaked up versus um, uh, uh, untrue things. Like it, it's good to learn about untrue things, but you have to learn about them in a meta way. So, like uh, f- you know, flat Earth theory. It's probably a good idea to know that flat Earth theory is a thing, but you can't learn flat Earth theory by itself. You have to understand the, the one level up meta topic, which is why it exists, um, and why it's wrong and, you know, what its existence tells you about society. Um, you can't just learn about the thing. Um, same thing with homeopathy and, you know, uh, all these, the pseudosciences that are out there. Um, you can't just learn about them. If you just soak up knowledge about homeopathy, you're not really going to learn anything. But learning about homeopathy and why homeopathy exists and how it interacts with the real world is is very important. Um, yeah, absolutely. That, that's um, that's an excellent point of um, having the perspective about both the topic itself, um, kind of from the inside as well as the way that it looks from the outside and also um, how those two interrelate. Uh, that might actually be a good topic for us uh, sometime. <laughs> that's uh, that's a long topic. Because I, I've, it's a really long topic. <laughs> and But it, it has that aspect of there's, there's the way it looks from the inside, the way it looks from the outside, the way the two interact. And quite honestly, it's kind of the meta learnings that you can take from it um, that quite honestly can, you know, depending on what you're doing, uh, whether it's that topic or another, allow you to speak to it from both the inside and the outside. So um, there's, uh, in the space case, um, there's that way of talking about what's going on in space right now from the kind of general knowledge aspect. It's like, here's a thing that somebody walking in off the street who only knows like the occasional thing that they've seen on, on television about space efforts. Um, I know the kind of mental model that they're working from because it's a mental model that I see over and over and over again. And because I know that mental model, I know what terms to use when talking about it. It's like, I know which, you know, um, common reference frames to point to as the accurate ones, the ones to build on. I know which common reference frames to avoid because they are not the accurate ones. Um, the, the ones to reinforce, the ones to, uh, um, to ignore. And that's a really important part is that you don't take the inaccurate ones and immediately challenge them because then you're building up the backlash effect. You're mm-hmm. going to, you're, you're going to completely wash out any, any progress you can make on informing somebody uh, by immediately attacking, getting back to our topic, the, it's like, well, that's a dumb idea. Or only only an idiot would think that. Mm-hmm. Or, well, if you believe that, then you're you're not very smart. Um, because then you're just inviting the, to shut down the conversation. If you can turn it around and somebody comes in and says, oh, yeah, well, you know, s- since NASA doesn't send humans to space anymore – xyz it's like oh well you know that's that's a really interesting point because here are a bunch of ways that people are working to put more humans in space and some of those ways are you know um you've probably seen um you know gravity and you know the people who are on the space station there yeah they're still up there um and that's been continuously occupied for you know uh, over a decade now um, and so kind of wending your way through the obstacles that you know are there, the, the map that you have from the inside of, of that, uh, that worldview can help to then kind of 
navigate somebody out <laughs> to the outside of that worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and viewing, uh, Viewing yourself as being smart if you have this acquired knowledge and experience um, is fantastic because it allows you to learn uh, in an exponential manner. Uh, if you learn a thing, you're not just learning that thing and then you know still being limited by your innate intelligence. You're learning that thing and you're learning how to learn the second thing. And then you learn the second thing, and then you can go to the third thing with two things behind you, and it it builds and snowballs. Yeah, absolutely. Because what you're doing is you're building up new tools, not just isolated knowledge um, or worse, um, anti-pattern tools that are going to you know prevent you from getting new knowledge. Um, you're building up the tools that you need to actually say it's like here's a thing, and here's how I can imp- incorporate it. Um, and here's how me exercising this tool now makes me better at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, th- I think we can pretty much end on what Karen just said in the chat. She says, uh, it's also important as an inside person uh, to see what you can learn from the novice's voice and perspective. If you fall into the trap of being a beneficent, patronizing expert, you run the risk of not gleaning any value from the newbie's question, no matter how silly it may seem at first. And that's totally uh, an acquired knowledge sort of viewpoint um, where knowledge can come. Hopefully, if you're doing this right, knowledge can come from anywhere. Whereas if you uh, believe yourself to be an intelligent person, um, Less intelligent people have nothing to offer you.